We've come to an exciting point in John's Gospel today. John's explained how Jesus was anointed into his ministry. He was baptised and then gathered his disciples together and called them into this closer ministry with him. And now he's ready to go big. He's travelled all around northern Galilee and then he goes back to his home base in Capernaum for a few days before he starts off for Jerusalem, the big city. The obscure prophet from the northern parochial town is about to move centre stage and he chooses the time of Passover to do it. And it was the duty, of course, at Passover for all Jews to offer sacrifices at the temple and it's now being magnificently rebuilt. Jesus, of course, had visited the temple many times in his life before. Most famously, he was there as a boy in, in Luke chapter 2, debating with the elders. So he knew what the temple was like, but he's now coming as the anointed Messiah, God's Holy One. And that makes things different. Now, the other three Gospels record a similar incident in the temple towards the end of Jesus' ministry. But John records this at the start, one of his first public acts on the national stage, as it were. So, so while the other Gospels don't record this, John believes it's important. It's a marker. It's Jesus' opening gambit as he, as he engages with the religious authorities of the nation. So what do we see him do? Got to imagine the scene. Picture the scene. The temple that Herod built was a, an enormous, huge affair. Even today, after it's been a ruin raised to its foundations for the best part of two millennia, it is immensely impressive. You can still see some of the remains today. And even though they were destroyed, they're incredible. The foundation blocks, some of them are the size of a double-decker bus, and, and you wonder how they managed to move them without machinery. Now, of course, the temple itself is destroyed and has been rebuilt as a mosque, and you can walk around the platform nowadays, and it's tranquil and peaceful and beautiful. But it looks nothing like it did then. Only the foundations of what was there in Jesus' day remain today. The most famous view of the temple, perhaps, is the Western Wall, which is just the western edge of the foundations and the platform on which the temple complex was built. And you can see, you get some impression of the immense scale of the building when, when you look at the size of the people next to it. Remember, that is only the foundations. The temple towered up for dozens of feet above even this. It rivals anything built in antiquity in any city anywhere, in Greece, in Rome, in Egypt. It truly was a magnificent building, built to the glory of God and where God dwelt among his chosen people. The temple was laid out in four areas. And as you can see from the model, this 150th scale model that reconstructed of Herod's temple that's in the Jerusalem Museum, there was, there was the, the most holy place in the centre where the Ark of the Covenant was kept and God dwelt and the chief priest could only enter there once a year. And then next to that, together with the holy place, the priest could enter that bit more often and they, they were the only bit with a roof. In front of that was the, a court of the priests where the sacrifices were made on the altar. Only Jewish men were allowed in that part. And then in front of that was the court of the women. And then there was a large wall around that complex with the Gentiles weren't allowed to cross on pain of death. And around that was a much larger wall on a huge platform over the whole hilltop, levelling the top of Mount Moriah. It was something like 1,600 feet by 900 feet wide, and it was nine storeys high with walls 16 feet thick. This huge platform enclosed the court of the Gentiles, and it had become a marketplace. So let's read today's passage together. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. 
When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables, and to those he sold doves he said, Get out, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. The priests of Jesus' day realised they were onto a good thing and made the connection that religion can make the powerful rich if they abuse it. If you make rules that people fail, they have to follow, otherwise God will punish them, then, then you have the world's greatest extortion racket at your fingertips. And that's what had happened here. And you see it in other established religions from time to time. Nothing unusual about Judaism at this time. It's human nature. It's not how God intended it to be. It's painful to God. But evil distorts everything. The Jews had to offer sacrifices and, and there were restrictions given by on what they had to be. They, they could only be offered at the temple. The animals, ha animals had to be blemish-free so that it was a real sacrifice and not just a way of getting rid of the poor animals from the flock. But that wasn't good enough for the priests. They wanted to make some cash out of this. So they instituted an inspection regime. And if they judged that your animal wasn't perfect, then you weren't allowed to offer it. Then if you had come a long way, so it'd be a shame for you to have to go back home and not offer your sacrifice. So, so why not buy one of our animals here? They're guaranteed, blemish-free. We inspected them ourselves, okay? So you want to buy one? Okay, that's 50 shekels, thank you. Oh, and, and you only have Roman coins on you. Sorry, we don't ex accept them here on the Temple Mount. They're, they're, they're unclean. You'll have to go over to my nice friend over there and change those nasty, unclean Roman coins into nice, richly clean temple coins at the bargain rate of oh, only two of my coins for one of yours. Best price. Do you see how that works? Do you get what's going on? I can't imagine that many animals that the farmers and the citizens brought themselves past inspection. And I can't imagine the exchange rate for temple money was anything other than vastly to the advantage of the temple authorities. A den of thieves, all right? And of course, when you've got a livestock market and the sheep and the goats are standing around all day eating and leaving the consequences of what they eat behind them and they're shouting and bartering and yelling and it is hardly a conducive atmosphere for worship. Imagine trying to pray in, in lovely surroundings like St Nicholas Cathedral there at the bottom of the big market in Newcastle. And you're sitting quietly in a pew and, and praying, contemplating the stained glass or whatever. And suddenly someone drives a flock of sheep through the door. And then a herd of cows and maybe a few goats or doves or something. And then the foreign exchange counter opens up and... Chaos, noise, 
And this was the only place that the Gentiles who weren't allowed in the inner courts, remember, they could come and worship Yahweh. And many wanted to, but they were only allowed in this den of extortion and filth. And the noise would carry over the walls, I'm sure, to the, to the inner courts as well, to the, to the Jewish worshippers. But the chief priests weren't worried about that. They wanted their rake off. And God's house had become the den of racketeers. And into this mess marches a young rabbi from northern Galilee with his disciples. And he's full of the righteous wrath of God at what is happening in the house of the Lord. House of prayer for all nations, as Isaiah puts it. And he yells at the traders and he tips up the tables of the money changers. And he twists some bits of string together and lashes out at the sheep and the cattle. And he sets them stampeding off through the crowds. And he publicly shames the authorities who let this happen, who condoned it and organised and profited from it. And this is Jesus. This is where he starts his public ministry. Right at the first commandment. You shall have no other God before me. And these extortionists have put profit and crime ahead of God and corruption and pleasure ahead of worship. And he makes his point. <laughs> can, you, can you imagine what it must have been like as one of his disciples just then? You know, one minute you're minding your own business, fishing away like your father and his father before him. And then this young prophet comes along and what he says is amazing. And he can perform miracles and you think, yes, this makes sense and I'm going to learn from this man. And then one day he takes you from your comfy life and you're off to the big city, the bright lights. All you've known is your comfy little village of maybe 50 people and you're off to Jerusalem. And at Passover too, where maybe two million people will be crowded into the place. And there was hubbub and noise and soldiers, lots and lots of soldiers. And then this happens. Right in the centre of the most important building, the most important city, in the most important festival. Jesus makes a scene. Cringe! Embarrassment! Fear! What's going on? What's happening? What's going to happen to us? And then they recall the 69th Psalm, a messianic psalm. A psalm that described how the Messiah would behave when he came. The zeal of your house has consumed me, has burned me up, has seized hold of me, has devoured me, has made me have to act. This wasn't gentle Jesus, meek and mild. This was a righteous prophet of God, like Elijah or Jeremiah, or bringing the word to the people. They remembered and they now understand that God does not and never has compromised with evil. God doesn't tolerate evil. God will not allow evil in his presence. You know, the, the picture that we so often we show of Jesus and of God the Father is his love and his kindness. And that is good, and, and we'll come back to that. But we have to recognise, if that is all we believe about him, then we don't have the full picture. God is love, but he is also at the same time a God of wrath, and judgment. And there are things he has told us are evil and we have to make a choice because he can't stand them. We can't bring them into his presence. Like oil and water they won't mix. Like light and darkness where there's one the other one can't be. We have to choose them or him. And Jesus is saying and, and showing in the most public way you can imagine He's saying to the faces of the most powerful religious authorities of the day that this doesn't please God. You're doing evil. Stop it. And this touches one of the great paradoxes of the Christian faith. God is love, but he is also 
judgment. God condemns evil. Yet throughout the Gospels we see plainly how anyone can come to Christ. Anyone can be accepted by God. Their background doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how far they've gone wrong. It doesn't really matter how evil they've been. God, Jesus comes and Cain just spoke with murderers. He befriended prostitutes, swindlers, liars, drunkards, self-righteous people, cynics, hypocrites. Because the truth is that while he hates sin, he loves the sinner. So if we come to him, he can remove that sin and make it as if it was never there. He made us, he understands us, and he wants to be reconciled with us. And God rejects no one. The choice is ours to make. God hates evil, but he loves us so much that he'll deal with the evil that's in us and leave us clean so that we can be reconciled. And the truth is he'll accept anyone who realises realizes that there's something wrong in their life. He realises that something's got hold of them and introduced evil and hurt and pain and heartache. Who admits that they're sinful and they can't get rid of it themselves. And anyone who wants to be free can come to Jesus. In Matthew 11, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Jesus said, anyone can come. And that includes me. It includes you. It certainly includes the traders and the money changers who he's yelling at here. And in this passage, the disciples understand it. Perhaps they understood it for the very first time. They understand that if you come, you can be certain that Jesus isn't going to leave you the way you are. He isn't going to settle for clutter, for compromise. He isn't putting up with extortion and racketeering. He has no room for whatever may be defiling or corrupting the temple courts, our own bodies, our own minds, our own temples. Many of us have misunderstood that because he comes to us in love and he deals with us with patience. We read later in, in, in John's Gospel, in, in chapter 8, about, about a woman who the Pharisees dragged before him who'd been involved in adultery. And the law said those caught in adultery, man or woman, were sinful and deserved death. And there was no question that this woman was guilty. But Jesus didn't take up stones to kill her. Instead, he said that he didn't condemn her and he released her from the punishment of stoning. Sometimes in our reading of the story we stop there, but it's important that we don't because he also told her to leave her life of sin. We think he's going to let us get by with some of the comfortable, easy habits and, and things we've built into our lives. But he won't. We have to choose. We have to choose between them and him. So the first step we take to accepting Jesus is repentance. It's looking at all the clutter and the manure that clogs up our lives and seeing it with God's eyes. Seeing it for what it truly is. It's all worthless in comparison to a life lived with God. An eternal life, a blessed life. Rather than a life that's consumed with the petty treasures we can build up on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, as Jesus says in Matthew's Gospel. Now, back to the story. As you can imagine this uproar in the temple in the middle of the Passover didn't go unnoticed. John 
doesn't record the details of the scene. He, he leaves his description fairly bare and, and it just fits into a couple of verses. But we can imagine. I'm sure a vigorous debate ensured. These people have been operating legally and they've been earning a living and all with the permission and the control of the temple authorities. And then this hayseed, as they'd see him with a northern accent, comes and tips the money on the floor and drives off their flocks and he tells them to stop it. As soon as you think they think he is. I can imagine that the language is probably not all as temperate as the, as the exchange that John records. But in essence, they say, who do you think you are? What right do you have to tell us to stop? And they probably added a few choice descriptive names afterwards. And they ask him, well, if you're the Messiah, then you should be able to perform miracles. Do one for us and then we'll believe you. Now it's, it's interesting that they, they took that line because it's a question as a Christian I get asked by people who don't believe in God today, in a sort of way. Why doesn't God show us he exists? If I saw some evidence by my own eyes, that I'd believe. Well, leaving aside the fact that there actually is lots of evidence to see, but it's just how you examine that evidence that makes a difference, really. The answer Jesus gave to the Jews then is still valid now. He speaks in prophecy about himself and he says, Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And as the, pro the, the passage goes on to explain, only after his resurrection did his disciple join the dots and realise that he was talking about his own body and his resurrection. And that was the sign. And the answer is that is the only sign they were going to get from him. And it would come in time and it was one sign and it would stand forever. There'd be other miracles, but that was the sign. Jesus performed many miracles, actually, healing, raising people from the dead, feeding thousands of people with a couple of loaves of fish, walking on water, raising people from the power of demons. Yet the Jewish authorities, or many of them anyway, some did, but most of the priests didn't follow him as a result of what they saw. They saw the miracles, but they still wouldn't accept that Jesus was the Messiah and was telling them they were wrong. So there's a lot about the role of signs and wonders. We're told as Christians that signs and wonders will follow us. And I've witnessed some myself. And I know many people I trust who have also witnessed miraculous events. The Bible says signs and wonders will follow us as believers. As Christians with the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, the Lord answers our prayers and miracles can and do occur from time to time. But they're to follow us and we're not to follow them. In fact, we're reminded in these last days to actually watch out because there'll be counterfeit signs and we can get easily misled if we follow them by mistake. We're to seek the truth, not just the miraculous. We're to trust the promise, not be constantly seeking after proof. And this passage, as John recalls it, is where it is because it only became apparent that it, what it meant after Jesus had given his greatest sign after his body had been destroyed, after he'd been put to death, and then on the third day, raised back to life. An impossible act, a unique act in history. An act that was totally impossible unless it happened to be true. Why was it necessary? Because of that incompatibility between evil and God. Because our own selfishness is such that we're never able to be clean enough for God to tolerate our presence. Yet he created us and he loves us and he desires our presence. He hates our evil, but he loves us. He can't tolerate the presence of evil 
Yet he wants us to be with him for all eternity. And that was a circle that the human race can't square on its own. It takes Jesus, the Son of God, to bear the wrath of God. To be incarnated into the, the body of a man and born into the body of a child. To come to suffer and to die. To face up to the holy wrath of God. To become sin itself in the eyes of God. To take it all on his shoulders and to destroy it. To destroy the power of death itself. And that's why God's love and his wrath don't contradict each other. Because it took all the love in the world to stand in our place. Only Jesus knew the full extent of God's wrath. Only he knew that what his father really felt about our sin and selfishness, our meanness and conniving, self-serving natures that distort and extort and seek after our own comfort and pleasure instead of loving our neighbour as ourselves and putting God in his rightful place. It took a love based in an understanding of our human nature that was profound beyond belief. A love in one whose wrath could scour the earth clean in a flood, who commanded an army of angels, who with a word created all that is, but who instead on the cross said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Who said that about the very men who'd flogged him, not with a few measly cords twisted together, but with a leather whip studded with bits of metal and bone that stripped the skin off his back about the man who shoved a stinking sponge full of vinegar in his face and crammed a rough bunch of thorns on his head, about the men who hammered nails into his hands and his feet and shoved a spear into his side. As Graham Kendrick's great song says, we worship at your feet, where wrath and mercy meet, and a guilty world is washed by love's pure stream. For us, he was made sin. Oh, help me take it in. Deep wounds of love cry out, Father, forgive. It may be that you don't think this morning that you've done anything to deserve God's wrath. Maybe you think you're okay. You haven't really hurt anyone. You're not that bad, really. The reality is that your opinion isn't important on the subject. You may, you may not have actually ever hurt anyone. You may not be all that bad as, as compared to those around you. But that's not God's standard. The truth is that God doesn't tolerate any sin at all. Not one white lie. Not one selfish moment. So the question is, the important question is, can you measure up to God's standard? And that's important because the Bible says one day we will come before God and be judged. And the standards against which we will be judged will not be our own standards, they'll be his we will be judged by one who, as our passage this morning says in verse 25, for he knew what was in each person. One who knows what's in us. One whose standard is perfection. Let that sink in for a minute. Now I'm 52 next month. I know, hard to imagine. I've been following Jesus since I was a 10 year old. And I recall right now, as if it was yesterday, what it felt like when I realised what the truth of my situation was. As a 10 year old, I hadn't really hurt anyone or done anything that bad, I was just a kid. But I knew what selfishness was. I knew I wanted to do what I wanted to do. I knew what I was capable of and, and, and what my heart inside was like. And that 
why as a kid I hadn't really done anything worse than lose my temper maybe or maybe nick the odd sweetie or something but I knew there was this part in me that wasn't right and I knew there was nothing I could do about it myself and as I stood there tears streaming down my face as I understood how helpless I was and in that moment I gave it all to Jesus I asked him to forgive me and to help me be more like him and then I accepted the forgiveness that he offered me in exchange. And because Jesus had been crucified and borne the wrath of God, God was able to say, my sins dealt with them. He'd taken on his own shoulders the punishment that my sin deserved. Because while I deserved his wrath, he still loved me. And he'd done all that was necessary to save me. And I'm forever grateful, as the song says. Because he stepped into my little selfish world, and he made me new. And 42 years later, he's still making me new each day. He comes into my life and changes me and frees me day after day. And he releases me from the guilt and the fear and the selfishness of sin. And he tears up all the nonsense and useless baggage that clutters up and complicates. And he chases it away like, the, like he chased the money changes in the temple. And it's an offer that remains open to anyone who wants to accept it. The gift of God is eternal life. Let's pray. Now unto him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly, above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations for ever and ever. Lord, we praise you. We thank you. We are in wonder at your gift. We deserve the wrath of a creator God who doesn't have to put up with our nonsense, but who loves us and wants us. Lord, we just thank you that you do want us. And we pray today for all those that are seeking you, who need you, who are watching this and listening to this this morning. We pray that you will meet with them and show them your glory and help them experience your love. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.